In the previous hour, we were talking a little bit about uh, atheists and what they don't believe and the foolishness of some of their arguments for things. And in the back room, as we were preparing to come and worship God, one of the men prayed how much he thanks God for who he is and the truth that we know from the Scriptures. I love Jesus. Don't you love Jesus? He does all things well. He does all things right. And I hope that you realize that He has never done anything by accident or by chance. One of the things that we have been seeing in the text before us in Acts chapter 4, and I ask you to turn with me there again this morning. Acts chapter 4. One of the things that we talked about and studied when we looked at verse 28 of Acts chapter 4, where we have the prayer of these disciples following the outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon them when they finally got it, when they finally understood all that Jesus had taught, the Spirit brought to their minds and their thinking the things that Jesus taught and Finally, they understood and went out with boldness and preached Christ from the Scriptures. And here in their prayer, they say that He did whatsoever that was done, rather, from the death, burial, and resurrection, whatever Thy hand and Thy purpose predestined to occur. And when we were commenting on that text, we made the point that there is no such thing as coincidence. We don't believe in luck or in chance. We believe in God, a sovereign God who is in control. And so when we think of Jesus and all that He has done, not only in the history of the world, but from all eternity, we know and we believe that He does all things right and nothing is by accident or coincidence. That when He acts, He does so for a reason. What I want for us to see today and to remember as we go through the text that we will go through, that sometimes that reason is to encourage us, to teach us, to increase our faith, to show His goodness, to show His ability to keep His promises to us. To show us that He is in control to accomplish what He has promised. Sometimes it looks like He's not in control. But as we will see from the Scriptures, He is. In fact, the incident that we're going to look at today was uh, one of those times when it looked like certain defeat for our Lord. And from here, through His trial and through the cross, it looks like Everyone else is in control. That they're bringing these things upon Him as they will, as they wish. But what we're going to see is that's not the case. That He is indeed in control. And it comes from this passage that we've been studying. We look at verse 27 here in Acts chapter 4. As again, I remind you that here's the disciples praying. They're in prayer And they say in verse 27, Truly in this city there were gathered together against thy holy servant Jesus, whom thou didst anoint, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever thy hand and thy purpose predestined to occur. Now, we made the point that verse 27 is obviously talking about that whole complex of his death burial and resurrection, the passion of our Lord. That's the context out of what they're praying. Those things that they did to Him. And then verse 28, however, it was all according to Thy hand, Thy purpose, and Thy predestination. That was the major heading that we looked at and we called it understanding what is being said. That they are praying this prayer from the understanding of the power of God, the purpose of God, and His predestined plan. 
And then we went on from there and turned our attention back to verse 27 to consider exactly what did happen in the passion of our Lord. And that we believe that if indeed God is in control, we should see it in those events. We began the first event we looked at, not directly involved with the passion, although it mentions His redemption. We looked at God's sovereignty over the sending of His Son, Jesus. Where it says, at the exact Right time, in the fullness of time, God sent His Son. And it was at that time that crucifixion was there. It was at that time that the Jews had come to the place where they were trampling underfoot the truth of God and establishing their own ridiculous laws and regulations. And that Jesus came at the exact right time. Born at the exact right time. In the exact right way, according to the Scriptures. But from there we went on to John chapter 11 and saw Jesus' sovereignty ordering the raising of Lazarus and how He purposely stayed behind. Then He deliberately went to where He was buried and how He powerfully raised Him from the dead, forcing the hand of the Pharisees to do something because everybody was following after Him. Then we have the triumphal entry and they had to do something. Remember, what would have happened if they just said, well, let's just kind of wait and see what happens. But this amazing, this miraculous miracle of raising Lazarus forced their hand. They had to get rid of him. Otherwise, we'll lose everything, is what they said. And from there, we went on to see Jesus' sovereignty arranging the Last Supper. And we saw the indispensable location. It had to be in Jerusalem. And He made sure indeed that it was. We then saw His incomprehensible foreknowledge. He knew exactly how to, where to send the disciples and what would happen when they got there. And He knew Judas's heart. And then we led, that led to the indisputable conclusion that He is sovereign God. He knew that Judas would betray Him to the Pharisees and to the scribes, and to the religious leaders, and He used it all to His glory to bring about what we're going to look at today. Begin to look at today. Jesus had to go to the cross. And He used these men and their hatred for Him to bring about our redemption. And so our next stop is Jesus's. Sovereignty allowing His arrest. Jesus' sovereignty allowing His arrest. For this, I'm going to start and ask you to turn with me to John's Gospel and chapter 18. John 18. We're going to look at three areas of this showing the indisputable sovereignty of God in this whole situation. Of all the times in His life, where it may not appear that Jesus was in control, it would begin right here at His arrest. And following His arrest, His trials, and culminating with His crucifixion. However, we will see in all three, beginning today, that He was indeed in control. Let's begin here with what we may call the I Am Declaration. John 18, look at verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, He went forth with His disciples over to the ravine of the Kidron where there was a garden. And we know that this was the Garden of Gethsemane. Into which He Himself entered and His disciples. Now Judas also, who was betraying Him, knew the place for Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So let's begin with the work of Judas. I remind you from last week, Jesus knew his heart. Didn't he? Jesus knew what he was going to do, what you do, do quickly. He went out. The other disciples were, huh? What's going on? But Jesus knew exactly what Judas was doing. Judas, of course, knew what he was doing. He was going to betray Jesus. We won't look into the details of that, but it culminates in this. 
He comes to him, and as we read a little while ago from Matthew's Gospel, he comes to betray Jesus, leading this band. And this is the work of Judas. Jesus knew he would do this. He knew his heart. Judas knew Jesus. Just as Jesus knew Judas, Judas knew Jesus. He didn't know Jesus' heart, but he knew his pattern. He knew that he would be here. That's what the text tells us. Judas, who was betraying him, knew the place. For Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So Judas knew that this would be one of the places, at least, that certainly, most certainly, Jesus would be because he was with Jesus for years. He knew his pattern. He knew what he would do. So Judas knew Jesus and what he would do. Judas's betrayal here is one of the low points in Scripture. And yet again, God is using it. Think with me, please. If indeed Jesus knew Judas's heart and knew what Judas was going to do and didn't want to be arrested, what would Jesus have done? He would have gone someplace else. He knew exactly what Judas was going to do. He knew that Judas knew where he would be and he still went there. And he went there for the purpose of being arrested. Which would lead to his mock trials. And to his crucifixion. Which leads to your redemption. My redemption. He knew Judas's heart. He knew Judas would lead the mob there. And he still went there. Because he was going to the cross. To redeem his people. He knew what was about to happen. Didn't he tell his disciples this? Didn't he tell them? We've seen this on several occasions. Lord, uh, Lord told the disciples, we're going to go to Jerusalem where the Son of Man will be arrested, delivered over to the Jews, will be crucified, dead, and raised on the third day. He told them what was going to happen. And here he is bringing it to pass. He's in control. He's not being controlled by the mob. He is in control. So he goes to the usual place for prayer. And soon after, verse 3, Judas then, having received the Roman cohort and the officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, came there with lanterns and torches and weapons. So he goes to the usual place of prayer and Judas arrives basically with an army. The uh, translation uh, leaves a little bit of speculation as to exactly how many were there and scholars have debated over the years. But its best guess is that when it speaks of a Roman cohort, it is at least 500 soldiers. Some suggest at least 600 soldiers. And there are those who say they may not have had to take the entire dispatch But when it says that he took a cohort, it is likely speaking of somewhere in the neighborhood of 500 soldiers. Trained, elite, Roman soldiers. The Roman guard. These were the tough guys. These were the guys that the Jews usually hated. That the Jews usually dreaded. They couldn't stand them. But here, they're willing to abide with them because it will help their cause to get rid of this Jesus who is taking everything away from them. Everyone was following after Him instead of us. Let's get rid of Him. And we'll even use the Romans to help us this time. And so, somewhere in the neighborhood of 500 soldiers, plus it says in the text that there were officers from the Jews. That would have been likely the temple guard. So there were at least some, a contingency of the temple guard, the soldiers from actual Israel that would have been there as well. What an unlikely group. Israeli temple guard and Roman soldiers. Like oil and water. But anything to get rid of Jesus 
anything to kill this threat to our way. Now, we also read in Luke 22, and we, we won't go there right now, but we also read in Luke 22 that the chief priests and the elders were also there because Jesus addresses them in that parallel passage. So, not only did they send their guards, they, at least some of them, were there for this arrest as well. What an army. What a scene. What a mob. And we also read from other passages, such as Matthew 26, that there was a great multitude of people. You got Roman soldiers, you got Israeli soldiers, you got the elders, the chief priests, you got Judas, of course, and you got a great multitude of people. All of these to arrest one man. To arrest one man. Jesus. Now, my understanding of the situation and of the Romans and all would have meant that likely when Rome was in charge of the region, the Roman soldiers would have likely been sort of like the first line. They would have come, they would have been marching, they would have been there in a real show of force. Jewish officers and then the priests and those who would speak to Jesus come around and address Him. And that's when Judas addresses them. All of this by the one betraying Jesus, Judas. Jesus knew His heart. He knew what He would do. And He did it big time. No remorse. No penitence here. As He's leading all of these people, this mob with weapons and clubs to arrest one man. Jesus. And they come. And now we see the power of our Lord. The work of Judas and now the power of Jesus. Now this is not my opinion because it's right in the text. Look at verse 4. Jesus therefore knowing all things that were coming upon Him. He knew what was taking place. He understood and knew exactly what was going on. He knew what was going to happen before it happened. And as it's happening, we may be panicked, we may be upset, but Jesus is in complete control. He knows all things that are going on. All things that are happening. He knew all. People, as God, do you realize that from before the creation of the world, Jesus knew that He would come for just this occasion. From before the creation of the world, Jesus knew that He would come. From the creation of the world, in Genesis chapter 3, when God promises in the midst of the fall of man that He would send a Redeemer who would be bruised on the heel. This is the bruising! This is where it begins. So from the very beginning of God's revelation to man, we have God fulfilling what He had promised in the sending of His Son, Jesus. Do you also realize that Jesus, when He came to earth as a, as a baby, as a young man growing up, knew this is how it would end. And more profound than all, He had you in mind. From before the foundation of the world, through the creation of the world, through all of the history of the world, through all of the ministry of our Lord's life, He had you in mind to accomplish this to pay for your sins and for mine, the sins of the people of God chosen from before the foundation of the world, given to the Son. And here He now begins the process of paying the sin debt. All of this right here 
right now, right at that very moment when he was confronting this cohort, he had you in mind. Now let's see what he does. In verse 4, we continue on. He addresses them first. Therefore, Jesus, knowing all things that were coming upon him, went forth and said to them, Whom do you seek? He addresses them first. They don't come up to him and begin the confrontation. It's, he comes forth, it says. He comes right out in front and says, Whom do you seek? He is the one who initiates. He addresses them first. Now, look at the text. He, therefore, knowing that all things were coming upon him, went forth and said to them, Whom do you seek? He asks them. He puts the question first to them. Who do you seek? It is Him taking control of this situation right from the beginning. He addresses them first. He asks them first for their response and for their reason for being there. He takes the initiative right from the beginning. Now we have in verse 5 their response. In verse 5 they answered and said to Him, Jesus the Nazarene. Jesus. And they call Him the Nazarene. And I'm going to make reference to this in a moment. But I can't help but say that the reason that they called Him the Nazarene was because they hated Him. Can any good thing come from Nazareth? That was the saying. You have to understand that in their minds and in their hearts, Jesus was born in Nazareth. But He wasn't. And they didn't get it. They didn't understand it. They didn't know it. And so because they thought He was born in Nazareth, He could not be the Messiah. So all this stuff that He's done, all these miracles, all this healing, all this teaching cannot be valid because no Messiah comes from Nazareth. The Messiah comes from Bethlehem, the city of David. They didn't know Jesus came from Bethlehem. So, we'll address that again in a moment. But understand that they hated Him. And this calling Him the Nazarene was part of their hatred for this man. Now, note that the text is clear in verse 5 that Judas was also there. We don't want to miss that. The end of verse 5. And Judas, who was betraying him, was standing there with them. Judas was there. Judas knew who Jesus was. Judas was going to betray him. But Jesus takes the initiative and asks, Who are you seeking? And now, we see not only the fact that he knew what was going to happen, that he takes control of the situation, but he proves that he's in control of the situation. In verse 5, he says, they, when they answer Jesus, the Nazarene, he answers them and says, I am He. One of the great I am declarations in the Scriptures, particularly in the Gospel of John. I am do you think for a moment that he said that just indiscriminately or that he did not know exactly what he was doing when he said this? Do you believe that that was not on purpose that he said, I am he? This is again Jesus showing that he is eternal God. They said Jesus the Nazarene, He says, I am the eternal God. Whether you believe it or not, I am God. I am the Messiah. I am the One who came to deliver My people. 
Jesus says boldly and powerfully on purpose that He was the Messiah, the eternal God, the great I Am. And that puts to rest their accusation of Him being the Nazarene. They said the hatred, with their hatred that He was from Nazareth, He says, I am from the Father. I am eternal God. And as we see so often, it is not just words. It comes with proof. As we read in verse 6, when therefore He said, I am He, they drew back and fell to the ground. They all drew back and fell to the ground. This is amazing. Here we have trained Roman soldiers, the elite, the best, and they fall back to the ground. Now, there are some who suggest that they were startled. And certainly we believe that. Trained Roman soldiers, and the text says that he was standing before them. He came out and he stood there and asked, Who are you seeking? And when he said, I am, oh, they got startled and fell down. This is a display of the power of the great God who is God. The great God, I am. And so he says to them, I am He. And they all fell down. It wasn't only the Roman soldiers. It was, according to the text, the whole mob. They fell back. The the indication is that they were absolutely out of control of their own senses and abilities. They were out of control and fell back to the ground. So if they were out of control, who was in control? Jesus. Jesus was in control. They were out of control because He was in control. And they fell back as a display of His sovereign power and ability to control even this situation. Now, if you would, please, let's also see from Matthew chapter 26, a little bit more here. Matthew 26. We're going to go back to John 18, so don't lose your place there. But now in Matthew chapter 26, because I want to see what Matthew records and for us to think about that. Matthew adds this. Now, they come out against Him. They... uh, Come to Jesus, and in verse 49, in this passage, Matthew does not record the fact that they fell back. But after that, Jesus would have been standing there, and Judas comes to him and kisses him. In verse 50, and Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you have come for. And they came and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And behold, one arose who was with Jesus and reached and drew his sword and struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his ear. We're going to talk more about that in a few moments. And then Jesus said to him, Put your sword back into its place, for all those who take up the sword must perish by the sword. Now here's what he says. Or do you not think that I cannot appeal to my Father and He will at once put at my disposal more than twelve legions of angels. Once again, we have a bunch to deal with. Because according to the most reliable sources, that would have been approximately 72,000 angels. Twelve legions of angels. 72,000 angels. Which is a few more than even Judas led. Right? One of my favorite passages in the Scriptures in the Old Testament comes from 2 Kings. You don't need to turn there. 
But I, I'll remind you of the situation. Elisha is up on the mountain. The king sends the people to arrest him. So, in the morning, his servant wakes up and he looks down and all around the bottom of the mountain are the armies of the king that was sent to arrest Elisha. And what does Elisha say to his servant? Don't worry. Those that are with us are more than those that are with them. And he goes, what? And then Elijah says, open his eyes. And what happened when God opened the servant's eyes? He saw, according to the text, multitudes of angels and with chariots of fire all around the man of God. Multitudes of angels and chariots of fire were around Elisha. Now I ask you, if they would be around Elisha, don't you think that they would have been around the Son of God? If He so desired. And this is what Jesus is saying. I could have stopped this at any time. But He didn't. Why didn't He? For you and for me. Go back to John 18 again. John 18, it says that in verse 6 they fell back to the ground. And then in verse 7, again, therefore he asked them, Whom do you seek? And they answered, Jesus the Nazarene. And he answered, I told you that I am him. If therefore you seek me, let these go their way. He lets them get up and enables them to continue. Now here's the point. What does all this show us? All of this shows us that even in this dark hour, at the time of his arrest, when the whole cohort of Roman soldiers and all of these other people were out there with clubs and with torches to arrest him, to take him away, he was in Control, not them. This one man, the God-man, Jesus, was in control. So they were not arresting Him. He was allowing them to take Him. Because He knew what He came to do. He came to be arrested. He came for the mock trial. He came to give His life on a Roman cross. So even here, the sovereign God who shows His omnipotence, His almighty power, still allows them to take Him and arrest Him. Be assured, people, be assured that even in your darkest hour, God is in control. God is able. God is sovereign. God is the one who orders and controls all things. This is what the disciples were praying in Acts chapter 4. Here they are. They're all coming out against Jesus. The Romans, the Jews, the people, they're all out there to get Jesus. And yet, He is the one whose mighty hand, whose powerful outstretched arm, whose providence and whose predestination was bringing it all to pass. He is the one who is sovereign and in control. Now, we must continue this quickly. And I want you to see next what we might call the merciful manifestation. We had the great I Am declaration and now the merciful manifestation. Look at verse 10. Simon Peter, therefore... Now, remember when we read this in Matthew, it didn't mention who it was. But here it mentions not only who did it, but who it happened to. Simon Peter, therefore, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's slave and cut off his right ear and the slave's name was Malchus. And so, Peter cuts off this high priest's slave whose name is given in the text. I find it interesting that we know not only the name of this high priest's slave, Malchus, but which ear 
was cut off. His right ear was cut off. Great detail for something that was just made up and written by men. I say that, of course, mocking those who doubt the validity of Scripture. But here we have this merciful manifestation from Jesus. And here's our Lord's response first here in John chapter 18 and verse 11. He tells Peter, Put the sword into the sheath. The cup which the Father has given me, shall I not drink it? He's saying indeed that what he's about to go through is not from the Romans. It's not from the Jews. It's not from the people. It's from God. He came to drink the cup of wrath from the Father. And indeed, that is what He he did. On the cross, Jesus was not just passively dying. He was actively taking the cup of the wrath of God. The wrath due His people. That every single one had His sin paid for. That's the cup of the wrath of God being poured out on His own dear Son. He becomes our great sacrifice. And that had nothing to do with the Romans or the Jews. It was God's plan of redemption from the beginning or the foundation of the world. And Jesus came to do just that. And so it shows again His intentions that He was directing all of this to do what the Father sent Him to do. Now, go to Luke, Luke's Gospel, chapter 22, as we see a little bit more of what happens here. Luke 22. Here, in the midst of this whole situation with this Roman cohort and all of these other uh, Israeli soldiers and the mob that had come out, Peter takes a sword, draws it, cuts off the right ear of Malchus, and what happens next? A certain one of them, this is verse 50, a certain one of them struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his ear, but Jesus answered and said, Stop! No more of this! And He touched His ear and healed him. He touched his ear and healed him. In the midst of all of this chaos, at least for them, them having fallen backward and probably still struggling to their feet, Judas betraying him with a kiss, Peter strikes this ear, cuts it off, and Jesus miraculously and mercifully heals this man's ear. What does this show? Again, Jesus knew exactly what was going on. Jesus was still in charge. Jesus was still ministering to His people. Still ministering to those even who came to arrest Him. This was one of the mob. This was one of the guys that hated Him and came to arrest Him. And I believe it shows that He was able to do as He desired to do even in the midst of this situation. Even when they're about to arrest Him, Jesus was able to do exactly as He pleased, exactly as He desired, and He healed this man out of kindness and mercy. People, there is no situation that you may be in that Jesus can't heal. There's no situation that you may be in, as as chaotic as it may seem to you, there's no situation that you can be in that Jesus can't correct everything, make everything right, if He so pleases, to help, to rescue. People, there's no sin that you may be involved in that Jesus can't redeem you. That Jesus can't save you. Jesus in His might and in His power as God can forgive 
even in what seems to be a hopeless situation. He is merciful. And here we have this merciful manifestation from our Lord even in this. We rely on the sovereign God to deliver us, to rescue us. We, deli- we, we rely on His mercy and on His grace and on His love because we are unworthy. We are like those who would have been there arresting Him, mocking Him, chiding His followers and His believers. But by His grace, He reached into our hearts and mercifully manifested salvation to us. You know why I believe we know Malchus's name? You know why I believe we know what ear was cut off? Because I believe Malchus got saved. And John knew him. That's how I believe we know what happened. Because Malchus in the midst of this situation, the one that he came to arrest heals his ear. Can you imagine the pain that he was in? I mean, we, we almost look at this sometimes like it's a silly little thing that he cut off his ear. Peter was such a bad shot, he couldn't do better than to cut off his ear. Have your ear cut off sometime and see how it feels. I'm sure Malchus was not at all happy about losing his ear. He was in pain. Ah! And Jesus touches him and heals him. What did that do to that man? Changed his heart. Changed his life. And so this is Jesus' merciful manifestation given to us in the midst of this chaotic situation for others, he's still in control. Alright, so we have the I Am Declaration, this merciful manifestation, and I want to see one more, one last point here, and for this we turn to Matthew 26 as we see the prophesied separation. The prophesied separation. Matthew 26, look down to verse 57. And those who had seized Jesus led Him away to Caiaphas the high priest where the scribes and the elders were gathered together. But Peter also was following Him at a distance. Why? Because they had run away. We have in this text, in verse 47, while He was still speaking, behold, Judas, one of the twelve, came up accompanied by a great multitude with swords and clubs from the chief high priests and elders of the people. And now he who was betraying him gave them a sign saying, Whomever I shall kiss, he is the one sees him. And immediately he went to Jesus and said, Hail, Rabbi, and kissed him. And Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you have come for. And they came and laid hands on Jesus and seized Him. And behold, one of those who was with Jesus stretched and drew out His sword and struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his ear. And then Jesus said to him, Put back your sword into your place, for all those who take up the sword shall perish by the sword. Or do you not think that I cannot appeal to my Father and He will at once put at my disposal more than twelve legions of angels? So in the midst of this whole situation... Jesus says in verse 54, How then shall the Scripture be fulfilled that it must happen this way? And at that time, Jesus said to the multitude, Have you come out with swords and clubs to arrest me as against a robber? Every day I used to sit in the temple teaching and you did not seize me. But all this has taken place that the Scriptures of the prophets must be fulfilled. Then all the disciples left Him and fled. So in the midst of all of this, Jesus 
quotes Scripture or alludes to Scripture that must be fulfilled and all the disciples left Him and fled. The Scripture that He was referring to is from Zechariah chapter 13 and verse 7 which reads basically, Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. He quoted this to them earlier. If you look back to verse 31 in the same chapter, Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of Me this night, for it is written, I will strike down the shepherd and the sheep of the flock shall be scattered. But after I have been raised, I will go before you into Galilee. But Peter answered, and you know Peter going, well, I'll never leave you. I'll never leave you. But what happens is exactly what was prophesied. They all left. They all fled. Now, they all left. Did you ever wonder why the disciples weren't arrested? If they had come out against Jesus, wouldn't it seem likely that they would also have arrested His disciples as well? Turn back to John 18. And here once again, we see the sovereignty of Jesus in this whole situation and why the disciples were not arrested. Now remember, He's already said, I am He. And they've all fallen back out of control because He was in control. And now look what He says in verse 8. Jesus answered, I told you that I am He. If therefore you seek Me, let these go their way. I'll let you up as long as you do what I tell you. He's in control. He's in charge. He's the sovereign leader. And He's the one who's directing things. Let these men go and you can have me. And they do. They all go. Why did they go? Why did he let them go? And why did they go? Well, he was showing, of course, that he was in sovereign control, doing the will of the Father, because it was prophesied that they would be scattered. Yes, that. But also, here our Lord is ensuring that his flock was cared for. He had work for them to do. He had work for them to accomplish. And they could not have been put in prison yet. They would. Many of them would ultimately actually give their lives for the Gospel. But not yet. They couldn't be put in prison yet because they had work to do. For our Lord Jesus. Do you realize that if the disciples had been arrested, there would not have been three crosses on Calvary. There would far more likely have been about 14 or so on Calvary. One or two might have gotten away. We don't know. But there would have been Probably 14 crosses because they would have been around him. Because that's what Rome did. Rome killed people. Rome set examples. We don't want uprisings in Rome. You uprise, you die. That's what the cross was all about. Intimidation. Keeping people in line. So if the disciples were arrested, they would likely also have been killed, crucified with Jesus. Couldn't happen. Had to have them accomplish the task of spreading the Gospel, preaching Jesus in just a couple of days from now when He's raised from the dead, ascends back into heaven, pours out the Holy Spirit on them, and now Peter stands up and preaches. And that's where we get Acts chapter 4 when they're saying, Lord, now we get it that all of this happened by Your predestination, by Your hand, by Your plan, by Your power. This is how it all happened. They were bold in preaching the truth. And so again, to fulfill Scripture, Jesus let them be let go. And once again, 
I remind you that this is to show us that He's always going to care for His flock. He's always going to bring to pass what is right for you. That passage in Romans chapter 8 that says all things work together for good is not just some little fairy tale for everybody. That's for you. That's for the people of God. It all works together for good to them that are called, chosen, predestined. Those that are God's people. That's what it says. He's always going to care for His people. And here's what His ultimate care involves. And this is what He told His disciples shortly before this arrest in chapter 14. He says, Let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in Me. In My Father's house there are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am there, you may be also. In John chapter 18, he's going to prepare a place. He's getting on his way to go to prepare a place. And by the fact that he shows that he's in control, it teaches us that what he said in John chapter 14 is also true. That he will bring us to him in that place. It has to happen because he's the God who is in control. You have the promise from Scripture of a sovereign, all-powerful God. And that He will fulfill the Scripture and bring His people to Himself. And I close with just a warning. Just a warning. He will also fulfill the passages that speak of judgment upon those who refuse to bow the knee to Almighty God. There is a heaven but there is also a hell. And as true as heaven is for the people of God, hell is true for those who trample His name underfoot and shake their fist in His face and worship the creature rather than the Creator. I warn you this day, it's all true. Jesus was in control because He was fulfilling truth. And Jesus will bring truth to pass in the lives of everyone in this room today. God help us to be with Him in glory and not to meet Him as judge. Let's pray.